You're listening to the MLS Multiplex Podcast with contributors from MLSMultiplex.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the MLS Multiplex Podcast. Uh, I am Drew here, again as usual, with Josh and Connor. Guys, how's the week been? Still in quarantine, how's the week been for you guys? It's been pretty solid on my end, uh, much of the same. Hanging out, chilling, trying to be as uh, productive as possible, but uh, nothing new, nothing crazy here on uh, my end. Still have the mustache? Absolutely. I'm I'm oh, good. pretty set on keeping this thing and after giving it some more thought, I'm pretty close to keeping it whenever all the quarantine stuff ends. So, we'll we'll see how that goes. I'll definitely keep you guys updated on that. Nice. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Pretty decent week so far. Yesterday's weather in Toronto was amazing. It was like 19, 20, 21 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is Fahrenheit for you two. Uh, but that's warm, so it was nice spending some time outside and not freezing my ass off. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that's about all I have to say about the last week. It's been pretty non-existent, other than some other sports coming back and more news around the Bundesliga and things like that. How was the MLS tournament last night? Because, of course, it's not available in Canada, so I didn't get to see it. Uh, but I know you two watched it. So how did the New York City, New York Red Bulls game go? Because you guys mentioned that that was a pretty good game. Yeah, I I thought it was probably the the best game so far. Uh, it was like super entertaining from from both legs. Uh, for those that didn't get a chance to see it, Sean Johnson, goalkeeper for NYCFC, represented. Um, boys in blue and Aaron Long represented uh, Red Bulls and uh, Sean Johnson kicked Aaron Long's butt in that first leg three nothing but uh, the second leg was probably the funniest part with the EMLS guys um, Adamu for I believe it was Red Bulls and uh, Diddy Chris Lito for NYCFC uh, they were able to finish out the win for NYCFC however uh, on the broadcast, Aaron Long requested that he get a red card in the video game. And the EMLS guy, Adamu, he delivered. He got Aaron Long the red card in the process uh, that gave NYCFC a penalty. And Diddy Crislito then went on to take the penalty with Sean Johnson and scored. That was by far, I think, the most entertaining, funniest thing that has happened so far. Uh, what did you think about that first match, Drew? Yeah, I was very impressed with how good Sean Johnson was at FIFA. I don't remember the exact scoreline. I know they won. They beat the Rebels five to one on aggregate, um, but I'm I can't think of the exact scoreline that Sean beat Aaron by. But for sure, the highlight was when Sean Johnson on the video game scored the penalty kick. Which the two best moments to me were both keepers like with Sean Johnson scoring the penalty kick, and then going back to Minnesota and sporting Kansas City when Tyler Miller pulled himself out of goal. but So I don't know what it is with keepers in FIFA, but that's been like the best entertainment is watching these guys play. But I was really impressed with Sean Johnson um, in Dallas. My Fafa P. Colt, my no pineapple man, came through for me, got the win. So I was very happy 
to see Dallas beating Houston like I predicted. <laughs> On the other hand, I I hated that second game between Dallas and Houston. I for me it was Oh, it was just so boring. In fact, I noticed on the uh, the broadcast, they started to skip through a bunch of the actual game just from lack of things happening on the, on the field. So I thought that was a little disappointing. I have to say so far through all of this, the, the EMLS guys haven't really impressed me. And I... I know. I believe me. I know they could they could destroy me if I was to play them on one on one. But in terms of entertainment value and, and watching the EMLS guys go head to head, you know, I, I wish I could say I've watched a lot of their tournaments and things up until this point. I haven't. That being said, I hope those tournaments are a lot more interesting to view than has been the case so far through this. But I will say the MLS players themselves have definitely been keeping things entertaining. Um, but again, the Houston FC Dallas for me was super boring. Even the NYC FC uh, Dallas quarterfinal match, the aggregate score was one nothing. And yeah, it was a golden goal situation where Sean Johnson had to beat Fafa Pico. And that part of was somewhat interesting. But overall, I think last night was kind of a dud. So I'm hoping this upcoming weekend is a lot more entertaining. Yeah, we had two golden goals, which if I'm not wrong, I think that was the first golden goal we've seen in the tournament. Sean Johnson scored against Fafa Pico to advance, and then Fafa Pico in the earlier rounds scored on golden goal to beat Houston. So that was pretty cool. But besides that, yeah, it's interesting to see these EMLS guys playing against one another because, like you said, like it's really easy to think that they're not good, but you know that they're so evenly matched and that they would destroy like just a normal player. But it is interesting that there. It's very when you look at the scoreline, it's pretty boring to watch. But you know that these guys are so good at FIFA. Yeah. So you guys, did you guys both go two and zero, or did you? When do you go one and one? I got the. NYCFC pick correct. Um, I missed Houston over Dallas, and I also happened to pick Houston over NYCFC in the uh, quarterfinals, so I missed that one as well. So like, overall, I, I went one for three, unfortunately. Uh, I think, Drew, you did better, right? You picked Pico? I went three for three, yeah. I picked Pico to win, and I picked Sean Johnson to win, and then I picked Sean Johnson to beat Pico, so... I had my best, after starting off rough, I had a solid, solid weekend. So I went all three. Connor, you went, did you go 0 for 3 this weekend? Well, I went 0 for 2 in the first two games. So I'm not looking very good in the semifinal. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was a pretty rough pick on my part. So yeah, after starting off pretty well in the first week, I did it. Uh, Massive hit and swing and a miss on... Sean Johnson and Fafa Pico. Um, gladly, Fafa didn't make it to the semis or to the, I guess, se- semis? Is it semis or finals next? Semis. Oh, finals. No. How are they doing this? They've got Is semis it one more left. week or are they? They've got one more corner of the bracket, which we'll get to in a second. Yeah. And then they've been playing a second round in the same night to get to the final four, to the semis. And championship week, which is... Not this weekend, but the following weekend will feature the two semifinal legs, uh, matchups, and then the final. 
Oh, so they're doing the two semis in the final same day. Yes. And actually, uh, something I've noticed is this is going to take up five weeks, um, and this is in the two-hour block before The Last Dance comes on ESPN, at least for viewers in the United States. But I found that to be extremely interesting, but that is what it is. I've, I've had my Sunday nights mapped out, as you guys can tell, the last few weeks. I've got a routine going from 7 to 11. I'm locked in on my television. Yeah, I started watching The Last Dance, and it's been pretty decent so far. Um, if you're, even if you're not a basketball fan, I'd say watch it. Uh, have you guys watched all of it before we jump into our major topic? Absolutely. It's so good. Yeah, I've, I've loved every minute of it. Yeah, I wasn't around. I wasn't alive at all. I was born in 99, so I don't remember these Bulls teams at all. But I just know they were so good. So it's cool watching that. And like Josh said, I mean, when the MLS starts and then when the second episode of The Last Dance at night, I'm on my TV. And last night was especially fun for Atlanta United fans because after The Last Dance ended, they showed a rerun of the 2018 MLS Cup Final. So from like 7 to 2 in the morning, I was in the same spot on my couch watching TV. Oh, you got to love lockdown. Yeah, but highly recommend watching The Last Dance, even if you don't like basketball or like the Bulls, because I do not like the Bulls at all. I'm a diehard Hawks fan, but I still have to appreciate the GOAT. It's a reality show based around professional athletes. It's probably the best way to describe it. Pretty much. Not just any professional athletes either. We're talking arguably the... The best ever at this sport. Never mind. Personally, it's not arguably for me. I mean, he is the best ever, but... I agree, Josh. Good take, good take. <laughs> yeah, how's that How's that scorching hot take for you guys that Michael Jordan is the best <laughs> basketball player of all time? I, LeBron's got a little bit of an argument. No, no, but no, no, we're not. <laughs> I still think... No, I think MJ still has it. It's just LeBron, he's a little bit in there, if you get what I'm saying. He's... On the outskirts. He's a solid number two. I mean, he's pretty good. He's not bad, but I, I will, he's no MJ. I will say he is now way farther away from MJ after watching this documentary. I would agree. I'm waiting for the LeBron documentary, though. Maybe in a couple of years, like it's when like, I'm 40, maybe we'll years. get one. Yeah, then, then we'll talk. But the MJ gap is growing because of this. Now, speaking of Sunday nights, this upcoming Sunday night, next round of the MLS is going to be especially fun for the three of us. We've got Toronto and Vancouver facing off in the first matchup, and then Atlanta United and Orlando City featuring in the second matchup. Vancouver will have Eric Godoy as their MLS representative, uh, and it looks like Xra, E-X-R-A-A is the EMLS representative for Toronto, Marky Delgado, and Phil B94. For Atlanta United, Franco Escobar, is the MLS player with Paulo Neto, the EMLS player. And for Orlando City, we've got Nani and FIFA Abe as their two representatives. So even though you haven't been watching, Connor, you probably know the most out of the three of us about Toronto's EMLS player and perhaps maybe Marky Delgado's uh, FIFA skills. Who are you going with for Toronto and Vancouver? And can you tell us anything about their EMLS guy? Uh, I know Phil, well, his name's Philip Balk, uh, Phil B 94 underscore on Twitter. He posted his foot champion results today. He went 30 and 0. Uh, so there's that. He's very good. I know he's done pretty well in other tournaments. So I, 
I have very high confidence in him. I think he did decently well last year in the EMLS tournament, Leagues Cup, whatever they called it. Uh, so, of course, I'm going to have to go with him. I don't know if Delgado's very good. He's the one that scares me. Uh, and the fact that they have Eric Godoy playing as opposed to one of the bigger name players also scares me a little bit. But again, Toronto didn't choose their best player. Vancouver didn't choose their best player. I think it's going to be two guys who actually know what they're doing and could be a really good game. Now, Drew, I have a feeling I know who you're going to pick for both of these. And for that matter, I think, Connor, I think I know who you'll pick for the Atlanta United one. We'll get there in a second. But, Connor, I'm assuming you're going to go with Vancouver, right? Your uh, team away from home? Oh, definitely. Uh, look, it's not that far-fetched. I do have family that lives out in BC. But Vancouver's a laughing stock. They need all the help they can get at this point. Uh, if you're paying any attention to hockey, like half an hour ago, it was basically just spilled that their entire front office is incredibly dysfunctional. So they need all the help they can get. With that being said, I'm going to choose Toronto because... It's just fun watching Vancouver burn, um, even though they probably don't really care about this tournament. Who cares? Uh, um, so yeah, I'm going Toronto. Who are you guys going to go with? Are you? I know. I know who Drew is going to go with. Yeah, he's got to pick Vancouver, right, Drew? Of course. And Josh, I think you're the only interesting pick of the two of us because you don't have a horse in this race. Uh, you know, I. I that's a good point. I, I was in between. I, I didn't really lean either way, but. After you said that uh, Phil B94 took care of business and went 30 and 0, that's kind of terrifying. So I'm I'm gonna have to I'll pick I'll be safe on this one and I'll pick Toronto over Vancouver. So it looks like at least for this one, Drew, you're the only one gonna gonna pick away from the rest of us. But I know it happened last week with Dallas and I was right. So it's true. Maybe I have my again. faith. I have my faith in Godoy in the Pacific Northwest. So. But what I'm curious about, and maybe Connor, maybe you can answer this, but when I think of, because obviously they're kind of like trying to put rivals against each other and whether or not these games are rivals is another topic, but why didn't they put Toronto against Montreal? Because I feel like Vancouver is kind of this weird third kid in this rivalry. Oh, they definitely are. Uh, It would have made a lot more sense to do Vancouver against Seattle, but they didn't. Uh, I guess they didn't, the two FIFA guys didn't want to be in this tournament or those two teams couldn't find someone who would want it to play or I don't know how they decided the format for this tournament. Um, maybe they're going to do a second one after and they'll have the two winners face off. Could be really interesting. Find that hard to believe. I feel like they just wanted two Canadian teams. Uh, both of them can speak English. Uh, I don't know if the Montreal guy would necessarily be able to speak English. He probably, I'd say odds are he can, but there is that outside chance because in Quebec, you can learn English, but I don't think it's a necessity. So that might have played a part in it. Either way, I think they should have played uh, Toronto against Montreal. I think that would have been insane and would have gotten a lot more attention between the two fan bases because, as you said, Toronto just doesn't really care about Vancouver. They've never had any meaningful games apart from the Canadian Championship, which... For being quite honest, up until last year, wasn't really a challenge. Um, now that the Cannes Premier League is a part of it, you had 
Vancouver lose to Cavalry. Uh, so there's a bit more animosity there, but again, in MLS, it's just non-existent. I already know who you two are going to take for the Atlanta-Orlando game. What is your reasoning behind taking Atlanta over taking Orlando? Well, I think we talked about before that Atlanta media is like hyping up Franco Escobar. Like, I don't know if he's as good as they say he is, but I'm going to take their word for it. And like, I mean, this is kind of the playoffs, right? And like Franco Escobar just randomly decides to show up in the playoffs. And I have learned, I picked Orlando to be Atlanta last year. I think I was picking Orlando to finally get their first win and it didn't happen. So my process is, pick Atlanta until Orlando beats them. So until Orlando wins in any front, whether it's EMLS or on the field, I'm picking Atlanta. So between playoff Franco and this little rivalry, which I put in quotes um, because that's a different topic, but Orlando hasn't beaten him yet, and I think it's going to carry over to FIFA 20. So until Orlando does it, I'm not picking it. Yeah, and it's the pretty much the same thing for me. I mean, based on, you know, we talked about this a lot last week, but so far the X factor in all of these matchups has been the MLS player. And it seems that Franco is pretty good at what he's doing. So I think at least for me, besides the whole Atlanta dynamic, it's an easy choice. I haven't really heard anything on Nani's FIFA skills. We could be wrong, of course, but you know, so far seems like Franco's got the upper hand. That being said, I think this is where we're going to get a really exciting quarterfinals round. So uh, Drew's got Vancouver and Atlanta. I've got Atlanta and Toronto. Um, Connor, are you going to go with Atlanta over Orlando, or are you going to be the odd man out on this one? Well, you see, on the one hand, I have you two really hyping up Franco and his talent. And on the other hand, I have not picking him, being the odd man out and having the potential to either win big or lose huge. Uh, I'm going to go with Orlando simply because I saw on Twitter that Nanny was actually practicing. And I don't remember seeing pictures of Franco practicing. So... Whether that means Nanny has no idea what he's doing and is trying to run the controls, or if he's actually trying to get better, who knows? I'm going to go with Nanny just because why not? There's no real reason to it, just to pick the other guy that you guys didn't pick. But yeah, I'm going Nanny and Delgado. Who do you guys have taking your semifinals? Um, I'm just going to go ahead and pick... Atlanta and Franco. I will say, um, I think, you know, assuming at least for myself that Atlanta and Toronto get in, to me, that's the most intriguing possible matchup because while Franco could be the X factor, you know, let's just say that him and Marky Delgado, they draw for whatever reason. And it comes down to uh, Phil B and Paulo Neto. I'm, actually looking forward to that. I know I said earlier that so far the EMLS matchups have been pretty boring between those guys, but I know um, Paulo Neto is ranked pretty high in the world. I want to say top five. I I could be wrong, but I do remember when 
Atlanta signed him last year. He was one of the highest-ranked FIFA players in the world. So right off the bat, no, he's pretty solid. So I'm actually looking forward to the idea of Toronto and Atlanta facing off. That being said, I'm still just going to pick Atlanta anyway. Um, And again, if Franco is as good as people say he is, then so far uh, Adama Diamande for LAFC has was the best in his bracket. He went to the Final Four. Juan Cousin for Sporting Kansas City was the best in his bracket. He went to the Final Four. Sean Sanson was the best in his bracket. He went to the Final Four. So again, it's all about the MLS player, and seeing that Franco could be a pro FIFA player speaks a lot to his talent and how he might uh, end up performing on Sunday night. So I'm going to have Atlanta going to the Final Four. Uh, Drew, who do you have advancing? Um, I think I'm going to stick with you in the Atlanta thing because, like we mentioned, the level of these. What a shocker! Yeah, I know, right? It's the I do. I wanted to pick Vancouver, like you mentioned. Nothing's going good for him in Vancouver, whether it be soccer or the hockey team. And I love the Canucks, man. But whatever. But yeah, I mean, if Franco's as good as people say he is, then I mean, like we talked about, it's come down to the players have been the reason that teams have been going through because these EMLS guys are all so good that the difference is so small. So I think it's going to come down to which player can get the win. Um, and again, I haven't heard anything about Godoy Delgado or Nani, but again, I haven't really been looking, but I've heard a lot about Franco Escobar. And like you said, when Atlanta signed Paulo Neto um, for their EMLS player, that got a lot of hype, which like you said, it was like top five or something like that. So I knew off the bat that he was pretty good, but I think Franco getting all this hype is the difference maker. But I would like to see Godoy win. I would like to see something good go for the Whitecaps and for an organization in a city that desperately needs it. But I'm sorry, Vancouver, you're going to have to wait another year. Uh, Connor, who do you have? I don't know why I'm asking you, but who do you got going through the quarters? Simmies, Simmies, not quarters, Simmies. Well, now you're making me really question my choice, uh, mentioning (laughs) the Paulo Neto thing, because I didn't know that. But... I guess I have to go with TFC just to stick by my boys. Um, I don't have much confidence in this pick, if I'm being honest. We'll see what happens. I'd ha- Yeah, you guys are making me really, really unconfident in this. In the same way that the women's national team should feel very unconfident in the outcome of their lawsuit, which was announced last week. Um well, I guess we'll transition from MLS because we sort of EMLS because we've talked about that a lot. Uh, U.S. Men's, women's national team, they had their last lawsuit was, I don't know how thrown out is the best word, but more or less their equal pay argument was proven as not exactly proper and there wasn't enough evidence to support it. So the judge got rid of it, but the judge also allowed the U.S. Women's National Team to go to court over their treatment of coaches and medical staff, etc. What do you guys think of that decision, and where do you think this goes now that this decision has been made? I think on the surface, and a lot of people have sort of made the statement, you know, it's a loss for the women's national team. It's, I think a lot of people believed that a best case outcome was both sides mediating and 
reaching some sort of a deal. The, the women didn't really want to do that, which is fine. Um, but for the court to reach a judgment this quickly, I think was a little bit shocking when it came down. Um, and for them to throw out the the payment basis part of the lawsuit, of course, it's, it's a loss for the women's team. That being said, and I think we'll go a little more in depth down the road in this podcast, but you know, we'll definitely talk about the difference between winning in the court of public opinion and then in the court of law. And I think that although the women didn't get the result they wanted in the court of law, this might ultimately, I mean, it probably will ultimately end up being a win uh, in public opinion. So, you know, I, th- I think that, again, on the surface, not a great thing, but this could have a positive lasting effect for them. Yeah, I think, like Josh said, I mean, obviously when you look at it, it's a big blow for the women's national team. But I'm going to take it a step further. I think it's a pretty, in a way, I mean, like on paper, it looks like a win for USSF. But like Josh mentioned, with the court of public opinion, um, it's not really helping their case. So I really think, in a way, you could say it's a loss for both women's national team and U.S. soccer um, because U.S. soccer really has nothing going right for them right now. So to see them win this case, win in quotations, is kind of just not helping this public look that they're having to work through. Um, But it is interesting, like you mentioned, Connor, that the judge left the door open for other things, right? I mean, at the heart of their argument, they wanted equal pay, and I think that's their main rallying cry that they want. Um, So with things like travel and coaches um, and accommodations and all that stuff, it is interesting that... Those are still possibilities, and like Josh alluded to, how there's a possibility that this could come out as a win for the women's national team, and I think that those areas, although they're not 100% what the women's national team wants, getting their way on those areas is going to be another step further um, in their continuing to push and get this equal pay for them. Um, So I think that is the next interesting step to see where the judge rules on that. Um, and I think U.S. soccer is in a pretty interesting spot because, I mean, the women's national team are their money makers right now. I mean, winning a World Cup uh, and looking for the Olympics, they're pretty high-profile people. So U.S. soccer's kind of got to give, have some give and take there, and I think those issues, um, those areas that the women's national team is fighting for, I think that is going to be, like when Josh mentioned, it might end up being a win in some areas. I think that's going to be the thing that ends up being a win for the women's national team. Yeah, I think if we're being honest about this court case, it was never about winning the actual court case. Their arguments in terms of the equal pay weren't strong enough, and you can't do anything because you've agreed to the CBA. Even if it's against what they believe in, I think it's Title VII. Um, It's not something that can be changed unless you agree to change it and to challenge that in court they never stood a chance what they were really trying to do was sway public opinion which i think they've done an excellent job of right now it's just nothing but support for the women's national team whether it be from i believe joe biden said something either today or yesterday um the the u.s men's national teams in support billy jean king uh countless media representatives it's just gained a lot of support from the outside point of view they never win this argument in court because they agree to the cba 
they're either going to have to renegotiate something or wait out the deal, which ends in December 31st, 2021, I believe, and swallow that tough pill, even though they may feel slighted, they did agree to it. And that's something that they're going to have to live with. It's something that they're going to have to deal with over the next few years. They chose security and a salary over potential and bonuses, which whether or not that was a smart decision as the best team in the world remains to be seen. I'd say it probably wasn't, but who knows? They could have fallen off and Canada could have taken over or Japan or China or any other up-and-coming European nation. They were just in a really tough spot on this lawsuit because they didn't necessarily have the arguments and the lawyer, I guess, opinion that they could win it. And that was, in my opinion, never what the lawsuit was about. It was always about swaying public opinion. It was about turning this into a movement to eventually go what they want on the next CBA, which is going to be really interesting to see what happens because an interesting caveat is the U.S. men's national team is currently playing without one. And I just see it as being too obvious that they're waiting to agree to one in a joint CBA with the women's team because there's no reason that they should be playing without a CBA. It's just, it doesn't make enough sense. Do you guys think that the U.S. men's national team not having a CBA right now plays a big factor into the fact that the women are currently going through this battle and are viewed as not having equal pay? Or do you think it's more of a, eh, we're already pros, we make enough money as it is, it's not that big a deal? I mean, I I think it, it is a big deal to all the players, men and women. Uh, I, I recall listening to Alexi Lawless, um, his podcast, and this was, I think, a couple months ago, but he talked about back in the 90s, he was part of one of the teams that believe they they uh, they went on strike against the Federation to get a CBA worked out. And I, I think that sort of mentality carries over today. Um, so I think it's important for the men and women, at least from my view of things, that being said, I don't think there's really any scenario where they will say, "Oh, we're already professionals. We don't we don't need to be paid for this." I, I don't think that will ever happen. Um, so that's just kind of how I see things on that. Are other national teams paid to play internationally, or is this just a U.S. sort of thing? I believe other teams are paid for their services. I know. Australia and Norway have reached equal pay deals for their men's and women's national teams. Um, But the logistics of those deals are, I believe, different from what the U.S. women's team is trying to get done. I know that for Australia and Norway, they've reached those deals because the women accepted equal percentages of prize money, not equal payouts So compared to the men's team. So in one way, it is equal pay. And in one way, it isn't. I also think that as the women's game continues to grow, this issue will be more prevalent around the world. And I think the U.S. women's team, being the face of women's soccer right now, and as they have been for numerous years now, they could be charting a path for other federations to sort of deal with this. Yeah, I think going back to Connor's question about the men's CBA and 
Josh mentioned Australia. They were, like you said, they're kind of one of the leaders in getting this deal done. And I think the Netherlands did as well. That might be wrong. But I feel like after their little run, um, they got an equal pay thing done. But that could be wrong. But with Australia's deal, a big part of how they got that deal done was that the men's and women's team were under one players association. Um, the PFA, Players Football Association, I believe is what it is in Australia, which that is not the situation that the U.S. men or women are under. They're under two very different players associations. So I think getting this deal done, the men's national team and their CBA is a factor for sure. Um, and I think a lot of people... What a lot of people want to get this deal done is the men's national team support, which, like Connor mentioned earlier, um, there was, I think it was just a statement um, by a spokesperson that mentioned their support, um, which is maybe a good step in the right direction for some people's view. Um, so I do think, Connor, answering your CBA, men's CBA question, um, having something like that, having the men's national team and the women's national team uh, somehow, eventually, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Um, but having both those teams under the same umbrella like Australia, and that's how Australia got that landmark deal done. So I do think the men's not having a CBA right now is impacting um, this equal pay argument. I think once that gets done, then there's more room to look forward. Yeah, and I think we should read the ruling just for a bit more context for people who may not have seen the quotes or whatever. The most notable quote from the judge was, he stated, merely comparing what w- women's national team players received under their own CBA with what they would have received under the men's national team CBA discounts the value that the team placed on guaranteed benefits they receive under their agreement, which they opted for at the expense of higher performance-based bonuses. I think that's really notable because he highlights the fact that they looked for more guarantees as opposed to more bonuses, which I assume is now a big issue because they've experienced so much success that those bonuses would be huge now. And it may be a little bit of regret setting in, which I think everybody would have. If I were in their shoes, I would also have that regret that I didn't take the bonus structure. But I think that might be playing a bit of a factor. Um, Even though that this is like a huge issue, like the equal pay has been talked about since they started the lawsuit back in 2019 and it's been controversial in the sport landscape um in the general society landscape as to whether or not these women are getting paid equally in my opinion right now they aren't but that's because of their own doing they agreed to that cba and you can't just say oopsies takesies backsies on a legal document that you signed. Uh, If you want to renegotiate with the USSF, go for it. Uh, I don't think anybody would have an issue with that. It's just right now you're in a legally binding agreement that you can't get out of right now. And that's something that's standing up in the court of law, but isn't necessarily standing up in public opinion because people think that they should be earning more for being so successful when the U.S. men's national team has not being as successful as the women. And I think that's really, really notable notable in their arguments and in the public perception, which has been the biggest part of the, this lawsuit, in my opinion. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. And I think when I'm trying to, when personally when I'm trying to compare 
and dig deep into this because it's a really super complex issue that I don't think enough people give enough time uh, to look through. But like you mentioned, Connor, the difference in success between the women's national team and the men's national team. And the women's national team actually did make more than the men's national team. But it's kind of, to me, it's seem, seeming like this is just a really bad timing for this because you have two teams on totally different ends of the spectrum. You have back-to-back World Cup champions um, looking potentially like the favorites to win Olympic gold um, in 2021. And you have a men's national team that didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup. So do you guys think that because they're on two very different ends of the spectrum, because it's hard to make this claim that make this claim for equal pay when you're actually making more than the men's national team, but it's because the women's national team best in the world and they really can't do anything that the men are struggling, right? So do you guys think that because they're on totally different ends of the spectrum, is the timing of this kind of hurting their case a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I I think for sure... You know, it really is unfortunate that this has, this issue has has arisen at this time. You know, like you said, and the thing that blows my mind, um, looking at the numbers of things specifically out of the ruling, uh, looking at the I think it's the per game rate of pay over the last however many years. The like you were saying, Drew, the women did make more on a per game basis, and what's crazy to me is. The women's team, so this is between 2015 and 2019, the women's team made $220,747 per game, while the men were paid 213639 per game. So that's a difference of a little over 7000 which, like you were saying, Drew, they're on completely ends of the game right now, completely different ends. I mean, the, the men's team is, to be dramatic, they're in shambles. It's really not quite that bad anymore, I don't think, but... To not make the World Cup is is pretty shocking. I think everybody will remember that for a long time. But on the other end of things, seeing the women's team win two World Cups back to back, and yet they only made seven thousand more. So I mean, I think that's you know something to think about. At the same time, if we're talking about timing, Connor mentioned that the current CBA for the women's team runs out at the end of next year. So it almost seems like the women waited until quote now to bring this up and bring this out into the public opinion so that it will benefit them in a year and a half when they are working through the next CBA whether it's with the men or not um, I think that it's very it's it's not by coincidence that they've decided to really press this issue now because it is a year and a half away but before we all know it that CBA is going to be expiring and this discussion is going to be a focal point for that upcoming CBA. I think it should be noted that the U.S. women's national team started this lawsuit back in March of 2019. So it's been going on for over a year already. So I don't know if it's necessarily a bargaining chip for their next CBA, but I think it probably the fact that it ends then does play a part because odds are this lawsuit isn't going to be over by then. Um, Odds are... As it sounds like they're going to appeal it, the appeal could take as long as into next year, and that won't even decide the rest of their lawsuit, which talks about the disparity in charter flights, uh, how much money is put into the hotel accommodations and 
travel and everything else associated with women's national team, which did get moved forward. I think that's really, really notable. That was sort of ignored. Um, Half of their lawsuit succeeded in a way and half of their lawsuits failed. It's just that the part that everyone's paying attention to because it's the most notable is the part that failed. And that's going to continue on until this gets decided and who knows when that will be. They'll... I think the most likely outcome is that these two sides agree to a new CBA out of court and all this stuff gets dropped and the women's national team gets paid what they think they should get paid. But bringing it back to your point on the men's national team making $7,000 less, we're talking about equal pay. And equal pay is, in essence, is earning the same amount of money. And right now, the U.S. men's national team isn't earning the same amount amount of money, even though they're terrible. And I think that's where the confusion and the discussion has to take place is, how do we pay these people so that they are paid equally? Do we do it based on a bonus structure, which is what I think the men's team have, where for every win, you get an extra X amount of dollars. And for every loss, your money doesn't go up. For every draw, it goes this X amount of money. For whatever your world ranking is, you get this amount of money. Because I think I think if they do that, it's very equal for both teams and it pushes them to be successful. Right now, the woman is focused, as the judge said, more on their uh, financial stability and more on uh, having guaranteed benefits than having the performance-based bonuses. And I think that's going to change with this next CBA. As Americans who have I assume followed this a lot more closely because I'm in Canada, of course, and we don't really have these issues up here because it's been fairly regarded as equal and no one's really said anything that negative about it. How do you see this playing out? Do you think this is really, really detrimental to the USSF as a whole? Because they're now absolutely hated by the women's soccer fans Men's soccer fans hate them because they just shut down the Development Academy and because they didn't make the World Cup. Where do you see the USSF going from this after this decision and after this entire case is over? Well, I think they're, like you said, Connor, I mean, the public look isn't very good at all. And, I mean, they won in court, but there's no way, public opinion, they're not winning that. Like, this country... I mean, soccer fans in this country are, for the large part, obsessed with this national team. Um, if you win World Cups, then most people will like you a lot. So they definitely, I mean, they're the money makers. You see Rapino jerseys, Morgan jerseys all the time. I think even um, with that new jersey they wore in 2019, it was like the best-selling jersey ever Nike's ever sold. So there's no doubt that those players are their money makers and they are you know, the best look, you know, when they're winning, it looks the best for USSF. But when the players that are winning are in a lawsuit with USSF, it doesn't really make the Federation look very good. So the Federation is, they're, they're going to have to make peace with this. Um, like you said, Connor, I mean, no one's really happy with them because on the men's side of it, like Josh said, kind of in shambles, um, looking like it's getting better, but still not making the World Cup is a pretty big blow that's going to last for a while. So between the men's side not being happy and the women's side not being happy, the Federation's kind of desperate, and they're going to have to work something out. And I think that's going to start um, with this, like you said, the other half of this lawsuit that's not getting that much attention with the 
um, travel, the accommodations and that USSF is going to have to um, win, in quotes, in that area by giving the women's national team what they want. And that's just, I think, step one in a very long process to get the public perception up. Um, so USSF, they're going to have to be very lenient and give these players what they want because they're, they're making the money for them right now. Yeah, I think, Drew, you bring up a good point when you're mentioning the other half of this lawsuit. I, I almost think the women should really be pushing that side of things a lot more. Um, at the end of the day, I think anyone that has ever watched a second of soccer in the last year can agree that the women's team is, is far better than the men's team. There's and there's no real debating that at all. It's undisputed for the last, you know, five years at this point. That being said, it's kind of ridiculous that they aren't getting the same amenities that the men's team is getting. And I know that, yes, there are discrepancies in the revenue that either team generates, blah, 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 whatever. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because one team is winning and one team is not. And to go back to answer your question, Connor, about, you know, is this detrimental for the Federation, all that? I, I don't think it is. I think, and, and I'm really just speaking for myself, but at least for me, it's really easy to separate the Federation from the women because watching the women play, I feel pride in watching them. I thoroughly enjoy watching them. You know, as a fairly recent soccer fan, I remember watching the U.S. play in 2010 and 2014 in the World Cups. And not once did I ever feel like they were going to win a game. And part of that is my inherent pessimistic outlook on sports, just from the city I've grown up in. But at the same time, I don't think anyone ever really gives the men's team a chance to win, nor should they. They've never really shown that they could give a serious run to the World Cup final outside of 2002. That being said, this past summer, watching the women's team, I felt probably as confident as I ever have in watching a sports team compete that I liked. And for me, it's easy to sit, to sit there and watch and enjoy what the women are accomplishing without thinking about the Federation. So while I really, really hate the way the Federation has handled this, and while I really hate the side they've taken, the position they've taken, the stance they've taken on this whole issue and the way this is all played out, which has been disgraceful at times. For me, their handling of this, I mean, I feel like I'm easily able to separate the two. I can hate the Federation and I can love the women's team and be excited to watch them. So thankfully, because they're so good and it's so much fun to watch them and they're so full of personality, uh, it's really easy to hate the Federation on the side and not let it affect my viewing of the women's team and, and when they play their matches. All right. And I guess to wrap this up a little bit, because we've been talking about this for a while, um, where do you see things going from here? Do you think this is the end of the road and that they just negotiate a new CBA or do you see this playing out in the courts in its entirety and it being a grueling, dirty really negative for both sides um, lawsuit that will just really, really hurt the relationship between the players and between the USSF. So uh, 
for me personally, I think this will get handled. Uh, at this point, it's drawn out for so long, and it's still so front and center in soccer fans' minds in the United States that the Federation has no choice but to fix this issue. Uh, that being said, I think for the Federation themselves and for Cindy Cone Parlo, the current president, she has two main objectives for the Federation moving forward for the next year and a half, roughly. It's to make sure the men qualify for the World Cup, which isn't necessarily in her control, but she will take some of the blame if they miss out on him. And then settling this equal pay lawsuit and equal pay issue. And I think that just getting one of those done is not going to be enough. And at this point, with the way the men's team has performed the last few years and the way the women's team has performed the last few years, I I think it's important for me to say that the women's team issue is far more important than the men's team issue. So I do think ultimately it gets resolved, but I think that both of these issues, but more so the, the equal pay lawsuit, needs to be handled by uh, Parlo more so. I, I think that needs to take priority, but I think eventually it does get handled uh, what about you, Connor? What do you think? Or Drew, sorry. Um, yeah, I think I'm on the same boat as you because like we talked about a couple episodes ago, episodes ago, um, Parlo Cohn is pretty new in this position and she was women's national team player herself. So she provides a very interesting perspective. And I think, like you mentioned, her top two priorities are getting this done um, and getting the men to qualify. And I think, well, more in right in front of us is this, the second part of the lawsuit getting, um, you know, travel accommodations and all that settled. So I think that's just going to be part one in the Federation, getting this knocked out. I mean, getting at peace with the women's national team. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think the Federation really doesn't have a choice. This is really important. This needs to happen. Like, I think you could even go back to 2016 after they won the 2015 final. Um, I mean, it's been going on for that long. This is an issue that when you when fans think of women's national team, it's one of the first things they think of. So trying to get that public look of it, U.S. soccer improved, um, this is a very important thing that they need to deal with. So I don't think it's going to be a long, I hope it's not going to be a long, drawn-out process. Um, I think it is going to be pretty quick. I think Parlo Cohn has this, and the new, pretty relatively new staff at U.S. soccer, I think has this on the forefront of their mind. So I think it's going to be, done as quickly as they can um, and not going to be as long and drawn out as it can be. Yeah, I guess And before we wrap up the podcast, there were a couple big coronavirus um, outcomes uh, with things getting better in society. A couple announcements made. Uh, the NWSL announced Monday that players could train individually starting May 6th. Uh, and the MLS made a basically identical announcement as players will resume training starting the May 6th. Uh, again, this is all individually, and I'm going to assume it's the same format as the NBA where these players have to be cleared in their state or province of origin. It has to be allowed. Um, and I think, Georgia, you guys have loosened it a lot. Uh, so, oh, no, you guys are still strict, or are you guys still... I've... It's, I've lost track of what each governor is doing because it's so all over the place. Uh, why don't you guys clarify a little bit? Because Canada, nothing's changed. Uh, we're still 
in lockdown isolation might change in the next couple of weeks, but right now it's the same. How's everything on the U.S.'s end? Well, for Georgia, uh, the shelter-in-place order from the governor that was made weeks ago, that expired this past Friday, I believe, and he didn't extend it. So people are, I believe, legally allowed to be out and about. Uh, and yes, and very infamously, Georgia opened up a lot of the businesses. They might have been, I want to say, the first state to really statewide mandate the opening of some non-essential businesses. So at least here, things are, are starting to relax. Uh, personally, I think that's unfortunate, but whole nother discussion. That being said, uh, that means that, yes, Atlanta United players will be allowed to train at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta training facility. Uh, they still have to follow social distancing, I believe, because that's what MLS is mandating, uh, kind of like what you're saying, Connor. So uh, at least here in Georgia, I know that things are, are pretty relaxed. I'm, I'm not super caught up on other states um, around the country. I don't really know too much about other markets uh, relaxing and opening up, but at least for Georgia, at least for Atlanta, players will be allowed to go to the training ground to train individually. Yeah, and I think both the NBSL and MLS, um, both the individual workouts, um, they're voluntary, uh, and they've put some pretty solid, strict guidelines um, in doing it. So it'll be interesting to see how players, if they decide to come back, um, if players may have returned home and are coming back to Atlanta or just really any team, um, across both leagues. So MLS and NBCL starting to come back, um, making baby steps, and we will see how that goes. Um, for better or for worse, we hope um, everyone stays safe and that this is just a sign of soccer coming back as soon as it's safe and possible. Um, but next week, we have a very exciting episode. We have, sticking with NWSL theme, we have Washington Spirit goalkeeper Aubrey Bledsoe. Uh, she's going to be joining in. So we are super excited to talk to Aubrey just about how she's staying in shape during the virus, um, what life is like going back to Washington and starting training with the Spirit, um, and just how she's been doing lately. So be sure to tune in next week. We're super excited to have Aubrey. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for talking. And like always, please find us on social media. You can find Connor at CWG Somerville, uh, Josh at Josh underscore Boland, myself at underscore Drew Hubbard, and the website, as always, at MLS Multiplex. And please do visit the website, um, even though soccer is pretty laying down and it's pretty quiet right now. Riders are still cranking out really good stuff. So be sure to check out the website for some awesome stories and awesome content through this break. Um, and when the break ends, we will see. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the MLS Multiplex podcast. You can check out all of the contributors written work at MLSMultiplex.com.